Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and I'd like to start this off with an apology because we haven't had a transportation podcast show in a little while, but to a degree, that has actually serviced us pretty well because in our absence, so much has affected the industry, and we get to start 2019 off with some really quality discussion about the future of the transportation industry, and really, what does this year have in store for some of the best and potentially some of the worst in the industry. So to kind of set the mood for today's podcast, I want to recount a story from about a week ago. Um, I was commuting to work, and my commute looks uh, pretty varied when it comes to the kind of transportation I use. I don't drive to work. I actually scooter to work. So um, I'm sure you're thinking, oh yeah, everyone's scootering, but I am using a kick scooter. So imagine me busting out the kick scooter early in the morning, and I am just hauling it down the sidewalk, making it to our public transit center. Then I'm taking the DART, which is our Dallas area rapid transit, and I get on the metro, and I commute into work, then I walk to work. So it's a mixed bag. But on my walk to work about a week or so ago, I was distracted a little bit by this bright habanero orange-red bike with a big jump on it. And I didn't pay it much attention, just thought it was another rideshare bike, right? Well, yes, I was correct. It was another rideshare bike, except this time it was Uber who was entering the space. And their jump initiative made its way to Dallas in the new year, and that really is big news. Dallas always seems to be one of the breeding grounds for new testing of rideshare initiatives, and day one, I already saw them in use. But to a degree, that feels small when looking at the other big news to watch out for this year, and that's the effect of the Trump administration's tariffs on the automotive industry. Toyota North American CEO even made a very public comment on it, saying, We are an industry that imports vehicles and imports parts, as do all the manufacturers in the U.S., and unfortunately, we're very close to being declared a threat to national security. That is quite the bold statement. Definitely a lot to unpack there, but in the midst of ride-sharing craziness, autonomous vehicle innovation feeling more mainstream, and these tariffs, we felt like it was time for market-scale transportation to ask a pretty big question. What is the biggest disruptor of 2019 for the transportation industry? Is it tech or is it tariffs? So that's what we're going to be exploring on today's episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast Show. Buckle in. It's going to be a wild ride of content. Um, How's the saying go again? Click it or tick it. (laughs) If you're not buckled in for this, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to issue you a citation. So yeah, get ready. It's going to be a good one. We're going to hear from two professors, one from the University of California, Berkeley, and another from the University of Texas at Austin, both exploring very different sides of the transportation industry and its future in 2019. Let's not wait any longer. Let's get those answers. Before we can get a feel for that main question, right, is it tech or is it tariffs that's going to disrupt the industry this year, we have to take a look at where companies are investing their time and effort. And I think that will give us a better picture for at least where companies are trying to guide this conversation. Like I mentioned, Uber's Jump program is another indication that big transportation disruptors are looking to disrupt a little more, and really on that little level. 
In this feature, we're joined by Dr. Susan Shaheen from the UC Berkeley Transportation Sustainability Research Center, and she's on the podcast to explain what Uber's further immersion to the micro-mobility space means for the industry, how it's going to affect tech, and really how other companies should respond and look to Uber for positives, negatives, etc. Here's MarketScale host Elmer Guardado with that feature. Take it away. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Thanks for joining us today. On this episode, we're joined by Susan Shaheen from the UC Berkeley Transportation Sustainability Research Center. She's going to help us understand why exactly her kind of research matters, how it can affect policymaking, and we're also going to pick her brain about all the different trends we're seeing right now in micromobility. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, Susan, I think a good place to start would be to explain exactly what your research emphasis area is. Yes, I've been working on uh, transportation sustainability for about 25 years and very much specializing in the domain of shared mobility and disruptions in the transportation systems for about 23 years. Okay, so we're definitely hitting uh, an interesting point in this uh, research, right, because we have now more and more... uh, I guess, variations that are possible with uh, all this new technology being dumped out into to the world, right? The shared mobility ecosystem has really developed quite a bit since about 2010. So in the early days, what a lot of people associate with shared mobility is this concept called car sharing, and that's short-term access to a vehicle that you drive. And a lot of people think about services like Zipcar in that category, and they got started around 2000. But around 2010, shortly after the introduction of the iPhone, came a lot of changes in the shared mobility ecosystem. New modes were coming online, but also some of the existing modes were changing. So a mode like car sharing, which was typically used in a round-trip fashion, meaning you go into and out of that same location, was now becoming one way in in its operation. So you could go from one location to the next and leave it there and pay by the minute instead of more by the hour. And then we also saw this dramatic change in what had typically been a business-to-consumer market where the operator itself owned and managed those vehicles. We saw the introduction of the peer-to-peer model where... Essentially, people were putting their own private vehicles either into a car sharing fleet or becoming drivers of on-demand mobility services like Lyft and Uber. So there has been a dramatic amount of change in the ecosystem since 2010, as well as the number of uh, players that have been playing in it. Right. And I think another uh, important thing to touch on that I think... um you know, people outside of academic circles don't really fully understand sometimes is, you know, w- what's the value in this kind of research, right? What are we trying to understand and or, or, or what kind of consensus are we trying to reach? So in your field, what do you think are some of the main goals in gathering this data and interpreting it? Well, one of the things that we've been really focused on here at our center, which is the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at UC Berkeley, one of the things we've been really deeply interested in is how do these innovations impact travel behavior? And then corresponding to how 
these innovations impact travel behavior is the question of how is it affecting that larger transportation ecosystem. So if people are changing their behavior for just evening and weekend travel or the commuting travel or just to the airport, what modes are they taking away from? Are they complementing existing modes? So people are using them for first mile, last mile connections, or are they shifting away from an existing mode like private car ownership and use or shifting away from public transit? So a lot of the work that we've been working involved in is the documentation of what I've called the impacts of shared mobility. And this is very important so that policymakers who are responsible for regulating and ensuring the public good on our rights of way know how to respond with respect to policy signals. Right, right. And, and I think the, the another fascinating part of that is, you know, with what we're seeing right now with the rise of bike sharing and, and, and now scooter sharing companies, too, what is the what is one of the most interesting or, or, or dynamic effects the introduction of these players into the ecosystem has had for the, the larger ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So what we've seen is a lot of disruption in what, what I would call the category of active transportation. So what we mean by active transportation is that you're walking or you're cycling. And around 2010, 2011, we really saw the beginnings of what is now being called micro-mobility. And what we saw coming online was was the more traditional form of bike sharing or public bike sharing, where typically it's a public-private partnership uh, and we see uh, docked bikes And we often see them sponsored by a major corporation. For example, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, Ford has become the sponsor of our bike sharing program. But what we predicted would happen with these models was that while a lot of people really like the docked models where essentially you have to dock that bike, their round trip or one way in, in, in service options, but that we thought that these services would not just evolve towards a dockless model where they don't have to be docked, but also we saw the evolution of this model into new vehicle types. And so what has happened is that category of bike sharing has changed. So now you don't just have the docked models, you also have dockless. And what happened in January of 2018 was the arrival of the dockless e-scooter model. And so these aren't moped-style scooters. These are uh, essentially what we would call a push-standing electric scooter. And market growth in that area was pretty dramatic, Um, about 5% growth rate or a little under um, just in its first year. And so what started to happen is these uh, scooters started showing up on streets of cities. And really disrupting possibly how people think about how they get around, but also disrupting the current infrastructure, uh, the use of the streets for this, the scooters, as well as the sidewalks where they're parked. So from all from your time studying bike sharing, right, which has, has been quite a while, we, we, we have more data from there, right, than we obviously do from what we're seeing with, with scooters since it's such a, such a, you know, it's been less than two years at this point. 
Is there anything that you're able to infer from what you've gathered over time about bike sharing that can help us maybe predict or, or better understand what kind of longevity these uh, e-scooter sharing companies might have? Because I think one of the interesting things is that the the dockless aspect of it seems to be having or, or getting a lot of negative repercussions, right? Where you're seeing all these pictures of impound lots that are just full of them and them just being destroyed in, in, in different cities. So, you know, what, what can we infer from what we, if anything at all, I guess, right. From what we've learned about bike sharing, um, to help us learn about how to deal with or react to, uh, the scooters now. Yeah. Great question. I think that when we study a mode that's closely related to a new one, we can certainly gain insights from how people responded to those technologies, as well as how uh, institutions responded, uh, how key stakeholder groups like the bike pedestrian communities um, responded to these innovations. But I will say that it's always important to study that next innovation, right? Because typically there's there's something new about it that we don't understand, and those new discoveries help us to maybe even understand better the, the knowledge that we have accrued on something like a, a public bike sharing model. So, you know, what, what we've seen, right, is that there's been a lot of appetite for the scooters, but then there's also been pushback. And this is not the first time that we've seen that. Do you remember the Segway human transporter? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that was a, a project that I also had an opportunity of, working on, given that I've been in this space for two decades. And uh, one of the things that that we saw there that I see a very strong analog to in e-scooters was the relationship to these devices and sidewalk access or trail access and the response of bike and pedestrian communities, as well as the disabled communities. So... Oftentimes, you put uh, a fast-moving electrified mode onto those types of um, shared infrastructure, there's going to be a response from other users. And so we are seeing that. But what I think is different now, uh, over a decade later, is that I think the companies have gotten better at introducing these innovations to cities and communities and trying to more rapidly come up with strategies for addressing concerns. Now, that's not to say that everything is perfect, right? Because we are seeing a lot of stories about the e-scooters. But what we're also seeing, I think, is a, a quick reaction in many cases to this by the companies. For example, one of the things that I've heard um, complaints about is how they're parked, that sometimes people are just leaving them and they're uh, obstructing um, the walkway. And so companies like, like Bird, for example, have developed an app um, feature that allows uh, people to report um, the incidents of um, problematically parked uh, vehicles, but to also move into a phase where we're asking the user of the scooter to verify that they have parked it properly as part of their checkout process. So this is an example of 
say maybe the, the public-private partnership having evolved in a different way over that plus 10 period, plus 10 year period of time in which the segue had been introduced. Um, but I think one of the other conclusions, you know, I've reached is that if we do believe that we want to have and support active transportation, we clearly need more dedicated infrastructure for it. And if there's going to be a new population of vehicles that are more quick moving and electrified in nature, it may be a good time for us to start re-envisioning spaces where they have safe separation away from the walking paths, but also they continue to grow in light of demands for other types of infrastructure, like infrastructure for automated vehicles. So that we don't forget that there may be a whole new class of vehicles coming that also needs infrastructure to allow them to operate more safely. Yeah, I mean, both of those things are so fascinating because I hadn't thought about either in that way in particular. And I think the the evolution of that private-public relationship especially is, is, is really interesting to look at just because of how you know, ubiquitous all of this phone technology has become. And, and, you know, looking at this market more, more, more in a more focused way, you know, I think the the biggest players right now are probably Lime and Bird, but now we have Uber trying to get a piece of it. What have you gathered just generally from this, this marketplace, right? Because when we look back, I think, I mean, we've, we've clearly hit a point of Uber and Lyft becoming ubiquitous, but Uber still owns, you know, a, a an unbelievable chunk of that market share and, and Lyft is catching up kind of, but not really at the same time. So, you know, what are you seeing from uh, what you make uh, what you make of this, uh, the, the market share right now as it is? Well, I think what we're seeing, right, is the evolution of mobility management. And with the acquisition of more traditional public bike sharing docked models, we're also seeing these companies that provide on-demand mobility via a commercial driver transaction saying, are we capturing, you know, a, a large enough universe of trips that people are making to justify the sale of a car or that dramatic of a shift away from traditional private car use, which is one of the objectives of these companies. And so what they're doing, right, is looking at are there other modes that we can provide access to as part of our mobility platform that could capture a larger share of total trips and perhaps ultimately start to compete with private auto ownership and use. And so this is not a new concept. It seems new, right? But I think the idea of a multimodal integrated platform where you can do routing, booking, and payment of your trips, this is something experts in the field like myself have been talking about for nearly two decades. But the problem was, right, is we didn't have the technology to facilitate the operations and we didn't necessarily have the ubiquity of the services or people in a mindset of commodifying transportation by transaction, right? But all of that is shifting. And so while these companies are racing ahead towards IPO, this is a way to become potentially a mobility provider of a, a far larger share 
of someone's daily mobility. And that daily mobility, in many cases, is not just limited to personal mobility, but also on-demand goods delivery. And you also see with the Uber platform, options like Uber Eats, right? Which are also growing very rapidly internationally. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, you got to imagine that, that that's got to be the ideal future for a company like Uber, right? To definitely hit a point where, you know, like almost like where Amazon is now, where they're just kind of doing a little bit of everything. And especially if they can focus on mobility, just between, you know, regular Uber and then Uber Eats and now you know, this bike sharing and scooter sharing, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how, how, how much sense it makes and how, how much almost, uh, ahead of the curb Uber seems right now, uh, and compared to everyone else. So my, my last question for you, Susan is, is kind of looking forward and, you know, generally do you feel that, you know, the bike scooter sharing, uh, system, especially now with where it is with apps and, and, and just being on your mobile phone, do you think this is the, the future of public transit, which I know is kind of a, you know, a sensational question to hit, to hit you with, but you know, is this, we are seeing Uber investing in it, which is probably promising, but you know, how, how much longevity can we really expect from some of this and how much can we even predict considering things that you even mentioned, right? Like I think the, the lack of infrastructure, um, is, is, is something that's so big that I hadn't even thought of before. Right. 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 Well, I think it's a valid question to ask, is this a trend or is this a paradigm shift in mobility? And as somebody who studied these things for a long time, sometimes we don't know. And sometimes things end up taking hold in a form that was less predictable than we initially set out to see it deployed, right? And so so in terms of crystal ball, what I think is going on, right, is that it appears that people are figuring out that if I jump on an e-bike or an e-scooter or a traditional bike sharing bike, I can get from point A to point B faster, more directly, and get some exercise in the process and, and pay less if I commodify that trip in contrast to say a motorized mode, right? And so does that mean that we're gonna continue to see the standing push scooter as the dominant model? Or might we start to see something that looks quite different? Maybe we're sitting on it. Um, There's a vehicle that um, I've I've long admired and wished I could study called the iRoad. It's kind of scooter-like and moped-like and motorcycle-like and very sleek and, 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 and OEM manufactured. So an automa- automakers manufactured this, right? So does the scooter represent a starting point for an evolution towards a broader array of micromobility devices as well as that supporting infrastructure that's needed for that? And whether or not these are always shared or sometimes privately owned, that can also potentially vary. So th- I think the best thing to do, right, is, is, is to read the studies and the research, you know, watch the market forces um, and, and keep an open mind, right, towards the fact that an app-based 
mobility platform could provide us with a lot of different advantages than we have in just private mobility, private vehicle ownership and mobility. And to answer your second question, really about is this the future of public transit, I think transit is evolving. And I think our definition of transit will evolve as well. I personally believe we're going to continue to need these long-haul fixed-route areas that rail is particularly adept at providing, but express buses can do as well. But what I do think we're starting to see with, with a different term called microtransit is the notion that these private companies may be able to provide first mile, last mile connectivity to those transit lines. They may be able to fill gaps when public transit simply can't operate efficiently, like late at night, or they may serve as replacements for routes that just don't have the ridership. And so perhaps maybe what we're also doing is moving into a new phase of, of public transit and, and really looking at, well, what is microtransit and how can microtransit services support and complement the fixed route lines, for example? Right, right. Yeah, no, I think... Yeah, I definitely hit you with uh, an impossible question, but that was easily the, I think, a, a great answer, right? Because I do think it's it's, it's going to be interesting to see what transit even means in a couple of years. What what we, you know, what people immediately jump to when they think of the word transit versus what, you know, we do now. So, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I appreciate your time and thank you for being so candid with me. Oh, well, thanks for having me on your show, Elmer, and I, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks again to Elmer Guardado and Susan Shaheen for that great feature. I think that really sets the tone for at least where the industry is hoping to go, right? So, I mean, if tech doesn't negatively or the tariffs don't negatively disrupt the industry, I think we're going to see a lot of these companies continue to push into this micro-mobility space. It's profitable, it's exciting, and it hasn't really been fully tested. We don't really know, I think, how uh, consumers and how the industry is going to respond to this long term. I mean, realistically, cities still haven't completely adapted to these micro-mobility trends. Um, Susan said it herself. Quote, if we do believe that we want to have and support active transportation, we clearly need more dedicated infrastructure for it. Uh, So it's an ongoing conversation and definitely one that the entire industry should keep their eyes glued to. All right, so now it's time for the looming question. 2019 is posed to be a killer year for the industry, and that can be interpreted negatively or positively. Autonomous vehicles, IoT sensors, manufacturers becoming telecom players, that's the tech side of things. 25% tariffs on imported vehicles and parts also on the table, that's another reality that could drive up car prices in turn, leaving manufacturers uneasy considering car sales are projected to drop in this year anyways. So what will affect the industry more, transit technology or transit tariffs? 
Dr. Dave Tuttle, research fellow in the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin, joins us on the podcast to give his insight. And Dr. Tuttle has very diverse research, but is focused mainly on plug-in vehicle adoption and integration with the grid, among other energy and transportation industry cross-sections. Even more interestingly, he's responsible for leading the team that designed the Power2 SC microprocessor used in the 1997 IBM Deep Blue supercomputer that beat world chess champion Gary Kasparov. That's a monumental moment uh, for machine learning, and Dave Tuttle was responsible for part of that. He's a true innovator and a tech-minded thinker, and Tuttle comes on the podcast to discuss the real challenges that tariffs pose to automakers, the other factors causing uncertainty in the industry, and some things he would fix if he were the boss of everybody in the industry for a day. Here's MarketScale host Sean Heath with the feature. Welcome to MarketScale Transportation. I'm your host, Sean Heath. In the automotive industry, there is currently one big elephant in the room, and that elephant is called a tariff. Now, I don't claim to understand as much about tariffs as I would like to because it is really a very interesting mechanic. I've always felt that tariffs were just a cost that companies, uh, specifically manufacturers, would pass down to their customers and increase price, uh, price for the goods. But there are so many other aspects of what a tariff can actually affect when it comes to manufacturing, specifically thinking about the automotive industry right now. Well, I have the privilege today of speaking with someone who knows a whole heck of a lot more about tariffs than I do, and he has some really interesting ideas on some of the other subtle effects that tariffs could have moving forward. Of course, I'm talking about Dr. David Tuttle, he is a research fellow in the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Tuttle, how are you today? Good. Thanks, Sean. Let's talk about let's talk about what's happening, what I think, to the automotive industry. And I love cars. I love all aspects of cars. And as far as public policy that I think is being extremely disruptive or concerning the, the vehicle manufacturers this year. It's not just tariffs, and we'll talk more about tariffs, but it's the government shutdown that shuts down the EPA's office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where all the auto manufacturers that want to sell vehicles in the U.S. have to get their cars certified uh, as far as emissions. Otherwise, they cannot sell them. And so the, the officials and the EPA being out of the office for five weeks, sooner or later, that's going to have an impact. And we may have a three-week reprieve in that right now, but who's to say that we might not have another shutdown? So I think that that's the most immediate one right now is the shutdown, getting back to where they can start selling cars again after they get them certified. And then we've got the tariffs that you were mentioning. We'll touch on those. And then on top of that, it's been a little bit quiet, but the latter part of 2018, they were gathering comments for the CAFE 2025 standards that were somewhat up in the air and the threat by the administration to pull California's waiver, which would lead to huge amounts of litigation, probably on the scale that we haven't seen in a long time between different governments, the states and the, the federal government. So if we wanna to touch on tariffs first, but there's a whole lot of, of pop, public policy uncertainty 
and regulatory uncertainty that's been introduced. Absolutely. Now, I do want to take just a moment to differentiate between a tariff or technology that is disruptive and a tariff that is destructive because those are not the same outcome. So if you would be kind enough, let's go ahead and talk about just the atmosphere that these tariffs can create on both sides of the cash register. Sure. So let's talk about what the automakers probably feel. They, they have long, sophisticated global supply chains, and they optimize those for cost and quality and and assuredness of supply, because if they have one component that they don't get, it could shut down their whole manufacturing line. So when they introduce a tariff that has 25% hit, uh, increase, well, that's that may be, a, certainly it's not going to be the whole price for the car, but it will increase the cost. They could choose to eat that for a while, but they'll go through different calculations on, is this a short term? Is this a long term? Should they start re-engineering a steel part into aluminum? Because I don't think aluminum has the steel tariff, for example, or make it out of plastic or some re-engineer it. Do they get the part still made out of steel, but have the part made in Mexico and then shipped here, perhaps avoiding that tariff? So you could see how just these, if you have this blunt uh, axe of a tariff, how it could start disrupting it. And most fundamentally, if it's really in an extreme, I could see a case where they could say, well, we have our input costs so much greater. Now that we have this new USMCA agreement in place, we'll just make the whole car in Mexico and then bring the car here. And it's a sophisticated analysis to see how many steel jobs are saved versus how many automotive manufacturing jobs could be lost. And it's not just the big manufacturers that are in, in our state or in others. There's tier one, tier two suppliers all over the country. And so it's a very sophisticated analysis given the, given the complexity of these supply chains that are global. There are an awful lot of strands that connect, as you mentioned, different tiers within this specific industry. And in talking about passing the cost on to consumers, okay, fine, the dollar value might be passed on to consumers, but there are additional costs, uh, peripheral guilt by association, I guess, that a company's reputation can take if these tariffs prevent them from being able to perform business at the level that they want to. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would see that. I think that they would have the cost buried somehow. They may be able to do a small price increase or do a substitution of the material or, or maybe offshore that particular component. I'm not sure the reputational, unless they had actual closing down of U.S. factories because the, the cost increases were so extreme that it was just uh, more advantageous to produce them in another country like Mexico and then import the vehicle. So let's uh, broaden our view a little bit and let's talk about the CAFE regulations that you mentioned because mm -hmm. while the tariff feels very immediate with potential long-lasting effects, the CAFE regulations could dwarf the impact of these tariffs. You'll hear automotive manufacturers talk about they typically need a number of years to plan ahead. These are very sophisticated products. And so the, the time period that's up for debate right now is basically 2022 to 2025. The rest have been locked down. Well, four years ahead of 2022 is 2018. So they would have liked to had everything locked down so they could do their R&D, they could set their product direction 
and know what they have to go do and do the hard engineering work and validation work. But they just shut down the comment period for their proposed changes in October, I think, and I haven't heard any responses to that. And, and so what they don't want is a huge amount of litigation between different states like California and the federal government because California uh, says that we've had for decades, literally decades since probably the 70s, ever since the, the Clean Air Act was first put in place, the ability to set more strict emission standards, not less. They can only be the same or tougher because they had particular uh, clean air problems, LA Basin, for example. And so they've always been able to go a little bit more advanced. Well, the waiver is what let them set their own standards. And there was a threat to try to, quote, pull the waiver. And that will light up more, that will be the Full Employment Act for many lawyers, okay? And so if, they, if that really goes on, then you're gonna see so much litigation and the difficulty that the auto manufacturers don't wanna wade into is having to produce two different types of the same vehicle, one for California and the other states that adhere to the California requirements and then the rest of the country. Now, one of the things that you mention is different requirements for vehicles. However, you are an advisor and you're one of the lead researchers in the areas of plug-in vehicle adoption. Specifically, you're part of the team there in Austin with the Austin's Pecan Street Consortium and the UT Austin Plug-in Vehicle Smart Grid Research Project. That sounds like that might be able to address this particular issue. Well, that's some older research. We were actually doing that um, eight years ago. Um, so the, the things that we're looking at now are electric vehicle charging infrastructure, for example. And there's been a huge amount of advancement in electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. And we're seeing that they're becoming more and more viable. And the projection is by anywhere from 2022 to 2025, they should have probably price parity or near price parity with conventional vehicles, at least from the mid-range on up. And I think that uh, with the infrastructure being in place and the vehicles becoming more uh, the, the, you're typically more cost competitive on a total cost of ownership basis, but even on top of that, having a price, a purchase price that's kind of equivalent will also make them even more attractive. Is that just more a question of marketing than anything else? No, I think that battery technology had to progress. Um, there is marketing in terms of the dealer, the salespeople really being um, educated and to be able to sell electric vehicles effectively versus um, trying to, to cross-sell you into an internal combustion engine because that's what they know more. Um, it, isn't, it isn't hard to have a dealer experience where you're dealing with a new salesperson because, and I feel sorry for the auto dealers in this regard, I've heard different estimates of 60 to 70% salesperson turnover a year. And so how do you keep refreshing your training to keep your sales force educated on a new technology? So they've got that. So from a marketing standpoint, I, I almost put it at the front lines. Um, a lot of times when you get 
electric vehicle drivers, they'll help sell the vehicles because they have such a generally positive view of them. Are tariffs and incentives opposite sides of the same coin? I think they have different transmission mechanisms. And there are different tools in the toolbox, and it all depends on what you're trying to solve. The issue uh, on which one fits better the particular policy problem or problem you're trying to address with policy levers. Um, if you've got unfair competition and, and there's an undercutting of, say, a domestic manufacturer's product's price, um, basically by a subsidy from a foreign government or some other um, unfair advantage there, and it's sold below the cost, then that might be a situation where a tariff is the appropriate policy instrument to deploy. An incentive typically I think of more as a, as a way to reduce the costs of a new technology and prime the pump. And eventually you want to eliminate the incentives and, and get it on an unincentivized basis so that there's fair competition. But uh, so it's, it's different kind of objectives have different tools, and I think they're different tools. So for the last question today, I want to make you the boss for whatever amount of time it takes for you to complete this initiative that you're going to uh, put into play. And the question is this, what are the top one or two things that concern you with regards to tariffs and regulations that you would be putting all of your energy into trying to improve or resolve? I'd get the shutdown out of the way and put the federal government workers back to work, especially in this case for the auto manufacturers being able to certify their vehicles so they can sell the vehicles so customers can buy the vehicles and dealers will have vehicles to sell. Um, the tariffs, I'd make sure that we have a sophisticated analysis of the supply chains to really see how effective they are as policy tools to go address what it's very fair to say that there have been unfair trade practices and we need we need uh, free and fair trade but how about looking at the tariffs are they the right policy to help address that and then the cafe regulations we'll just you said two I'm, I'm throwing in three and I think that the third one we'll see what happens when these come back into the um, the news cycle when they come back after their assessment from the public comments. See, now here's the thing. I made you the boss in this hypothetical, so adding in a third is completely within your purview. Okay. okay. I admire the fact that you assumed the mantle of responsibility there and you took the initiative. I like that. I think you're going to go places, young man. Oh, thanks. Today, it's been my privilege to have a conversation with Dr. David Tuttle, a research fellow in the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Tuttle, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. Thanks again to Sean Heath and Dave Tuttle for that fabulous insight. 
you know, it kind of leaves the question up in the air. I don't think we still have a solid answer for is it going to be tech or is it going to be tariffs that disrupt the industry the most in 2019? But I think with Susan's and Dave's insight, we get a better sense for at least how people within the industry and people studying and researching in the industry feel about these changes. It's an exciting and a tumultuous time for the transportation industry, but I know we're not going to see the end of any of these conversations, so MarketScale will stay on top of all of it. But till that content makes its way back around, that is it for today's episode of the MarketScale Transportation Podcast Show. And we really appreciate all of y'all tuning in and giving us your time. We appreciate having an authentic audience that cares about these issues because they really are very important to not only the industry, but to consumers as a whole. I mean, everyone drives a car or everyone uses some kind of public transit. So innovations in this industry really do affect everyone. And, you know, I'd like to hear more from the audience, actually, on potential story ideas, potential people to profile, industry events you think we should be covering please hit me up. I am all ears. I am here to help better represent the community and get your stories told on our platform. So if you have someone to suggest an industry event you think we should be covering or just some general industry news that you'd like to comment on, shoot us an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. That's my personal email. Again, daniel.litwin, L-I-T-W-I-N at marketscale.com. And if you like what you heard today and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.